Now, <clears throat> faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed as God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the Exodus and the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. 
By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the word of the Lord. So, what is faith? Faith is one of those words where its meaning in the Bible overlaps but little with its meaning in current Western use. In current Western use, it tends to mean one of two things. It can be a synonym for religion. There are many faiths, there are many religions. It's a synonym for religion. More commonly, it means something like a personal, subjective, religious commitment to some religious entity. All the words are important. A personal, subjective, religious commitment. Subjective, so it's outside the arena of public discourse. It's not the sort of thing that you can argue about in terms of truth claims. It's different from science or that sort of sphere. It's it's subjective, and it's personal, and thus idiosyncratic. And, and thus it uh, may mark you out as a, quote, spiritual person, but spirituality in this sort of context is pretty hard to differentiate from aesthetics or from subjective judgments about all kinds of non-testable things. I'm quite a spiritual person, you know? You have your Jesus, and for me it's the vibration of crystals. I'm, I'm really quite a spiritual person. And, and if you dare to criticize that, then, then you're intolerant because... Because, after all, faith belongs to the realm of the personal and the subjective. Well, in the Bible, faith occasionally has the first meaning. That is, it can refer to religion once in a while. Thus, um, in James, faith shows up once or twice with that overtone. It's 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 a reference to religion. But it never, ever, not once, has the dominant meaning that it has in the Western world. That is, as a subjective, personal choice. It never has that sort of meaning. It's more along the lines of the following. It's 
It's confidence and trust in God and his word that what God says is true and therefore trustworthy. It's along that sort of line. So it becomes a God-appointed means of perceiving that something is true, not simply a personal subjective choice. Having said that, it embraces elements not only of the propositional, something is true, but also of personal trust. That is, the devil himself can believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but that doesn't mean he trusts Christ. He believes certain propositions about Christ are true, but that does not make it saving faith, if you see what I mean. Moreover, faith can be spurious. Thus, in John 2, 23 to 25, we're told that many put their faith in Christ, but Christ did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in all men, and he, he knew that in this case it wasn't genuine. Do you, do you see? So you can find faith used in a phenomenological sense. That is, this is the way it appears to be. They seem to put their faith in Christ, but that does not necessarily mean it's genuine faith. You can put a question mark over some faith in some instances. There are a lot of instances of that in the New Testament as well. So in John 8, 30 and 31, we're told that many put their faith in Christ. And then Jesus said to those who had put their faith in Christ, if you continue in my word, then you really are my disciples. In other words, the genuineness of this faith that they had put in Christ would be tested by perseverance, very much like Hebrews 3.14 that we looked at uh, yesterday morning. Do do, do, Do you see? Genuine faith continues and perseveres. You get some insight into the nature of faith when you think through what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. That's the so-called resurrection chapter. And apparently, these Corinthians, they believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, they're forced to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But the general category of resurrection, they really can't quite absorb. They probably belong to that stream of um, first century Greco-Roman thought that uh, presuppose that the spiritual is good intrinsically and the material is bad intrinsically. So what are you doing talking about coming back from the dead physically? That's that's coming back to something intrinsically bad. So so they had lots of suspicions about the category of resurrection. They, They were happy to talk about immortality, but resurrection, it just sounded slightly screwball. No, they had to make an exception for Jesus because there were so many witnesses that talked about Jesus' resurrection, but they didn't look forward to the resurrection at the end of the age. So Paul starts to reason with them, and amongst the things he says is this. Suppose you're right. Supposing there is no category of resurrection. Throw it out. What does that mean? Well, if there really is no category of resurrection, he says, then, of course, Christ himself did not rise from the dead. If you throw out the category, then you can't make the exception with Jesus. Moreover, secondly, he says, the apostles and all the other 500 witnesses, some of whom he's named, they're a bunch of liars. They're either mistaken or they're deceitful, but you can't trust what they say because they claim that they did see Jesus in resurrection existence, not only in some sort of a spooky ethereal sense that you can generate on, 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 on digital film, but, but, but rather um, he was touched and, and, and handled and, and the stigmata that were there, the marks that, that were uniquely his, not only the, 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 the nail piercings in his hands and his feet, but the wound in his side, which was distinctively his, they were all there. There was genuine continuity between the body going into the grave and the body that came out of the grave. But they're all liars. They're all deceivers in some sense or another if, if, um, if, if there is no such thing as resurrection of the dead. And then he says in the third place, you're still lost in your trespasses and sins. What he means by that is, if everything else in the Bible is true but not the category of resurrection, well, the Bible says that we're condemned, we're, we're guilty before God. And, and it was Jesus' death and resurrection that freed us from our guilt. He bore our, our sin, our, our punishment, and the resurrection shows that he's vindicated and, and he has paid it all. And if he hasn't risen from the dead, then maybe he's damned too, and you're all lost in your trespasses and sins. And then in the fourth place, he says, not only so, but your faith is futile. Now, that's really interesting. 
What it presupposes is that for faith to be genuine, its object has to be true. If you believe something is true when it's not, the faith is worthless. In other words, faith is not intrinsically valuable if faith's object is untrue. The Bible never ever exhorts you to believe something that may or may not be true. It exhorts you to believe that which is true and only that which is true. And that's also why the way faith is increased in the Bible is not by somebody yelling at you, believe, 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 believe. Shut up and don't ask questions. Just believe. Rather, faith is enhanced in Scripture by the constant rearticulation and defense of the truth. As the truth is heralded, oh, I know, it takes the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to enable us to open our blind eyes and see it for ourselves and receive it for ourselves. But at the end of the day, that is still contingent upon the truthfulness of what is believed. And if instead you come to believe that which is not true, your faith is worthless because there's nothing intrinsically valuable about faith whose object is suspicious. And then he says the most devastating thing of all, you are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if the object of your faith is not true and you believe it, then completely in contradistinction from what our culture says, Paul says, your faith is then worthless and you are a joke. That's not very PC. It doesn't sound very tolerant, but that's what he says. You're of all people most to be pitied. Because there is... If there is nothing intrinsically lovely or attractive or admirable or honorable or commending to faith with a false object, with an untrue object, then you've committed yourself to truths that aren't true. You've committed yourselves to a stance that's not real. Whereas our culture says, because faith is subjective, it's true to you. If you think it's true, then it probably helps you. And if it helps you, that's a good thing. But supposing it's helping you by lulling you to sleep. Supposing it's helping you by by blinding you and making you feel good about yourself, but then you're not really perceiving what the truth is. How is that genuinely a help? Thus, the biblical emphasis on faith again and again and again is diametrically opposed to what the world means by faith. And that means when we encourage people to trust Christ or to believe the truth, to cast ourselves upon him, and so forth, we have to take times to explain what faith is. Because otherwise, when we encourage them to have faith, what they're hearing us say is, tune out, out, take a running subjective leap. Maybe it'll work out. It might help you. That's what they're hearing, which is not what we're saying at all. We're saying that what we are proclaiming is true, and we want people to believe it because it is true, and for no other reason. Well, for no other reason. There are some other reasons, but they're all derivative upon the truth. Because this truth alone saves you. This truth alone reconciles you to God. This truth prepares you for resurrection existence. Now, much of that is presupposed by our author's first comments in this chapter. In verses 1 to 5, he talks about faith's explanation, providing some early examples. Faith's explanation. We're told, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now we have to pause for a moment to make sense of that. In English, when we say hope, we inject immediately a wee bit of uncertainty. Several of you have asked, Don, when are you flying home? And I've answered usually pretty briefly, I fly out of Belfast tomorrow morning, catch a connecting flight in Heathrow. But I could have equally said, I hope to fly home tomorrow morning. And as soon as I put it that way, you hear me to be saying, that's my plan. I've got the ticket. But I have traveled enough in airlines to know that sometimes it doesn't work out like that. You know, fog comes in and the plane can't take off. Or there are mechanical defects, which usually means the engineer is on a boozer. Um, (laughs) Whatever it is, you, 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 you can't fly out. That's my plan. I hope to. But there is at least a question mark over it somewhere. Do you see? But in the original language, hope does not necessarily suggest 
uncertainty. I cannot say I hope for something in English without putting a question mark over it. But in the original, hope has to do with looking forward to something in the future. It is anticipation. It is expectation. Whether the thing hoped for is certain or not, that depends on the context. That's why in certain passages, the Bible can speak of the Christian's certain hope. Now, in English, that's an oxymoron. You can't speak of a certain hope. That's a contradiction in terms. But in the Bible, that makes perfect sense. It means the anticipation that you have is grounded on something that is certain. In other contexts, your anticipation might be grounded on something false, but that's got nothing to do with the term hope itself. That depends on the context, you see? So when the writer here says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for, this is not introducing some sort of strange contradiction in terms. It's saying... We anticipate something. We're looking forward to something. We're looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth. We're looking forward to resurrection existence. We're looking forward to the the consummation. We're looking forward to perfection. We're looking forward to reconciliation with God without any contesting at all. That's what we're looking forward to. And faith is being certain about it. It's assurance about what we do not see. That is to say, faith becomes a kind of additional sense, if you like. It is the ability, the God-given ability, given by grace, in fact, Ephesians 2 tells us, the God-given ability to see that certain things are true, including things that are still future, that are over the horizon, that we can't otherwise perceive. And that's why this entire chapter is so forward-looking. And it has to be said, this chapter makes one other emphasis about faith that you don't find everywhere in the New Testament, but it's a huge element in this chapter. Faith, genuine faith, perseveres. It enables you to press on and to press on and to press on, even when you're beaten, derided, sawn into, when you wander like a nomad and God has promised you a land, yet nevertheless you press on because it's looking to the future and you, in consequence, persevere. It's not just a momentary existential thing. Well, yes, I committed my life to Jesus. I believed in Him. It's more than that. It is, in consequence, believing constantly in Him, looking toward the future. It is a rich, full-bodied thing. And the ancients, that is, those of the Old Testament and even beyond, as we'll see, well, this is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now, the point here is to illustrate that faith, assurance, can focus on that which we do not see. We were not present at creation to observe, take photographs and make some measurements. So however complex the Genesis accounts may be, however symbol-laden they may be, nevertheless, at the end of the day, if you're a Christian at all, you believe that God created everything ex nihilo, out of nothing. That's part of a world-framing kind of confidence. And we're sure of it, even though... The truth of it is not something that is visible to the naked eye that we can measure in the public arena. And the earliest uh, human beings pleased God by offering a better sacrifice than others. And by faith, this Abel still speaks. That is, because he trusted Christ even if, trusted God, even though, um, though, though it cost him his life. He trusted God to do the right thing, and thus he still speaks. His faith still speaks today, even though he is dead. Then, one more example. This time, Enoch, seventh from Adam, we're told. He was taken He was transported, that's what the text says, we don't know how, so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because 
God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. He walked with God, we're told, and he was taken. So it is assumed that in this walk with God, it must have been because he trusted God. Since you cannot see God, he had to be related to him by faith. That's the assumption. So here's faith's explanation and earliest examples. Then secondly, faith's necessity, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Sometimes in debates with um, the new generation of atheists, you find them saying things like, um, I don't believe in anything that I can't see and measure. Well, of course, that's not quite true, but... There's some who push that pretty hard. You ask them, do they believe in love then? Well, you can't see it and you can't measure it. But, but some of them will be so consistent that they will say that love is merely a, a, a set of neurochemical reactions in the brain. Or it's a set of hormonal exchanges. But, but, but in the abstract, it, it doesn't exist. It has a physical basis or it's nothing. But the whole witness of Scripture is that God cannot be seen. And therefore, the only way of perceiving him is precisely by this other sense, this gift of faith. Now, God may choose to manifest himself in space-time history and glory that can be seen. He may choose to manifest himself in words that some men do here. So he speaks, for example, at the baptism of his son, and human beings hear the words. But God in himself, if he is to be known at all, will be known by faith, or else he is not going to be known at all. Moreover, there's another overtone to that. People want God or the gods to be predictable and thus controllable. Imagine creation this way. In the beginning there is God. And human beings are rightly related to him. They wake up in the morning and their imaginations, their thoughts, their emotions, their very life force goes back to God. It thinks about God. It delights in God. It worships God. It looks forward to walking in the garden with God. That's how central God is. Do do, do, do you see? But with the fall, then God is relegated. Now each human being thinks he or she is at the center of the universe. It's not that they go around saying, I'm at the center of the universe. But, But nevertheless, that's the way they begin to act. And, and, and now, because you, you stupid twit, you think you're at the center of the universe, now you become my enemy. Before, he and I were both rightly related to this one God, and thus we were rightly related to each other. But now that I want to be at the center of the universe, and this stupid twit wants to begin belong to the center of the universe, then, then inevitably there are fences, and wars, and covetousness, and rape, and all the other evils, all because... I want to be at the center of the universe. And God? Well, if he, she, or it exists, that God jolly well better serve me or I'll have my own gods, thank you. I'll define them for myself. And that's the beginning of idolatry. But all of that is part of a framework, a worldview, a way of thinking in which I am at the center of things and must control all things, including the gods. I prescribe the sacrifices. They give me the blessing. And, and all of pagan religion is bound up with that sort of notion. At the end of the day, it's a scratch my back, you scratch your, and I'll, I'll scratch your back sort of, sort of thing. A tit-for-tat exchange. I offer you the right sacrifices and you give me a safe sea voyage. It's, it's, it, it's the nature of religion. You, you, you pay your religious dues and you get a blessing from God. But supposing this God is the Bible's God, then he can't be domesticated. He can't be bought. He has no needs that you can meet. He is God. And you relate to him not with a barter system, but by faith. You trust him. You trust his words. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
Everything else diminishes God. It brings him down to the ranks of the controllable, the definable, so that at the end of the day, we are God. We have shaped God in our own image. But the the God of the Bible will not be domesticated. That is precisely why he can be known only by faith. This is faith's necessity. And then very quickly, we can run through the rest of the chapter, 7 to 38. Faith's examples across history. Number one, there have been two or three antediluvians, that is people before the fall already mentioned. But now we have another one, Noah. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen. Notice this invisible element again. He's told about the flood, but he hasn't seen the flood. He hasn't seen any signs of it. He simply believes God's words. When told about God's words, things not seen, things yet invisible, in holy fear he built the ark. That proves that he had faith in God's words. And by his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Then you move, 6 to 22, to the patriarchs. Abraham, first of all. Again, he did not see the promised land when he set out. He obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Moreover, once he got to the promised land, he was told that it would one day belong to his descendants, but he never lived long enough to see any of that. He was trusting God's words. He took it on faith, and that led to a persevering style of life all through his human existence, even though he did not live long enough to see any of it come to fruition. The only bit of land he ever owned was the land that he bought to bury his wife. That's it. But anybody that can live like that, the text says, live in a foreign country, live in tents, live in nomads, still nevertheless assured that God is telling the truth. Deep down, he's looking for a a city, something with foundations, a place to belong, a home. And at the end of the day, this can't be any city. It has to be the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God, that is, God has promised this ultimate home. This is not suggesting that he had a clear-eyed vision of Revelation 21 and 22. It does say that he had a clear-eyed vision of God. And with this clear-eyed vision of God, he would trust him. He would trust his words. The object of Abraham's faith was the words of God. And because of his confidence in the truthfulness of those words... He made his life's choices. Sarah likewise joined him in this. Both of them had their moments of doubt, which caused the the horrible incident with Hagar, so that he becomes father of Ishmael. Sarah at one point can laugh at the whole thing, but nevertheless, she does exercise faith for years and years and years, and in due course, she becomes pregnant. All these people were still living by faith when they died, we're told. That is, they did not see the fulfillment of the words of God in their lifetime. They live by faith. They die in faith. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers. But people who say such things are looking beyond this life, beyond what they received, looking for a home of their own, a country of their own, the ultimate city. I love the final sentence in verse 16. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Do you see that? The reason God is not ashamed to be called their God is because they trust him as God. Whereas instead, if we claim we have faith in God, but don't trust him at all, he's ashamed to be called our God. Because in our own minds, and our own actions, we're not worshiping him as God. We're, we're, we're not trusting him as God. We're, we're treating him as if he's a liar, or if he doesn't matter, or if his will doesn't matter, his words don't matter, his significance doesn't matter. And he's just ashamed to be called God in that situation. Isn't that a stunning insight into how God perceives things? So that when we exercise faith, 
God is not ashamed to be called our God. And, of course, it's by faith that Abraham offers Isaac as a sacrifice. At least he brings him up to the very point, and then, in fact, God provides a substitute. When the text says that Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, there is no verse in chapter 22 of Genesis that was read earlier that actually says Abraham reasoned that God could raise Isaac from the dead after he had slaughtered him. But if you were listening carefully when Johnny Gibson was reading the text, he actually emphasized the right pronouns. When Abraham and his son leave the serpents near the bottom of Mount Moriah, Abraham says, we will go and sacrifice, and we will come back. Not, we will go and sacrifice, and unfortunately, I'll come back all by myself. The only way he could assume that Isaac would come back, if in fact he was supposed to carry out the command that had been given to him, was that God would raise the dead. In other words, this inference in chapter 11 here is merely an inference a logical inference from what the text actually says. Somebody's reading the Old Testament carefully and is observing the pronouns. Do you, do you, do you see? Confidence in God's words. God had promised that Abraham's line would run through Isaac. So if indeed Isaac had to be killed, the only thing that Abraham could infer was that God would raise him from the dead. Now that's remarkable faith. And then faith exemplified in the life of Isaac, in the life of Jacob, in the life of Joseph. And in each case, it's faith in promises from God, faith in God's words, that things that God has announced will take place in the future will actually come to pass. Thus, in verse 22, by faith Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. That is to say... He believed the promises that that land, the land of Canaan, would become their land. They, they would get back there some way at this juncture. Joseph didn't have a clue how, but nevertheless, he believed that they would be going back. So he wanted to leave instructions behind to make sure that his bones were brought back to the promised land as well. That assumes that Joseph had faith, faith in God's words. Faith that would extend beyond his own life and death. Then various Exodus figures, verses 23 and to 29, Moses' parents having faith to hide Moses. Then Moses himself, when he is grown up, refuses to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chooses rather to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. That is, as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, he would have had access to all the wealth of the kingdom which was a minor empire, was a regional superpower at the time, with all of the education and the riches and the power that went with such uh, a heritage. Verse 26 is sometimes viewed as uh, pretty difficult. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. What does that mean? I mean, Christ hadn't come. What precisely does it mean? Don't forget that the word Christ, Christos, is simply the Greek side of Messiah. And Messiah means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, most commonly, there are two, sometimes three, and occasionally a fourth referent when you're talking about the Messiah. So, every priest was anointed. To become a priest, you had to be anointed. That made you a Messiah a Messiah, an anointed figure. And the king, before he became king, he was anointed as king, so priest and king. And in one or two cases, a prophet likewise is anointed. He becomes a prophet through this anointing. So prophet, priest, king, three, kingly, three, three magnificent offices bound up with Christ. So all of these figures are considered messiahs, anointed ones, but they all tend to point forward to the ultimate messiah, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. But there is a fourth usage that we sometimes overlook. It's found in some psalms and elsewhere. In Psalm 28, for instance, 
Psalm 28 and verse 8. We read, The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his Meshiach, for his anointed one, for his Messiah. Now sometimes, all of the Israelites together are called God's anointed ones. And sometimes the same expression, anointed one, is used as a singular in a collective fashion to refer to the people as a whole. Thus, in a similar sort of way, son can be used to refer to all of Israel. In Exodus 4, out of Egypt, um, uh, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say, let my son go, that he may worship me. And so son in the singular is used collectively for the entire nation of Israel. And when Hosea looks back on that centuries later, God says, out of Egypt have I called my son. And he, he doesn't mean one individual Israelite or just Moses. He means Israel as a whole. So likewise, Messiah, anointed one, can be used individually, just as the Israelites can sometimes be called sons of God, but it can be used as a singular collectively. So it is here. Notice the parallelism between the two parts of verse 8. The Lord is the strength of his people, collective. A fortress of salvation for his anointed one. That is, all of Israel collectively can be seen as God's Messiah, God's anointed one. Now when you get to the New Testament, the ultimate anointed one is the one we know as Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ I suspect that what is going on here in verse 26 of Hebrews 11 is something like this. He regarded disgrace for the sake of the Christ, of the Messiah, a worthy thing. It's a way of saying he viewed disgrace for the sake of God's anointed one, the people of Israel, the people from whom he sprang, the people who were at this point enslaved. The people who were at this point beaten up and had no prospects. But still they were God's anointed one and they would be redeemed and they would enter the promised land. And he, he, viewed, he viewed disgrace for them to be worthy because he trusted God's words. But ultimately, of course, along the Bible's storyline, the ultimate Israel, the ultimate son, is Jesus himself. Thus, in anticipation of where the whole storyline is going, he, he views disgrace for the Messiah, the anointed one, as something worthy. And thus, in anticipation, he's choosing Messiah, Christ, the ultimate anointed one, over the pleasures of Egypt. That's the way the line works. What it presupposes is, is, is this long, forward-looking typology, this long, forward-looking trajectory that brings you to the ultimate anointed one himself. Then we're told, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. Some people object, yes, but when he did leave Egypt, after he slaughtered one of the guards, the text explicitly says he left Egypt fearing the king's anger. Yet this text says that he doesn't feel the, fear the king's anger. What's going on? One suspects that this departure from Egypt, referred to here in Hebrews 11, is not the departure that he uh, undertook from Egypt when he was... Um, fleeing as a young man, but when he left at the head of the Jewish race, leaving England, uh, leaving England, leaving, <laughs> it, it, it might be the land of slavery too for some Irish people, I'm <laughs> leaving Egypt, leaving Egypt to, um, to, 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 to enter the promised land, he does not do so then out of fear, but in full confidence of, of God, full confidence that, that all of these plagues that had been pronounced and the Passover and so forth, all of these things had, had been given by God, by God's own word. And so he leaves not fearing the king's anger, persevering because he sees him who is invisible. And thus by faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood and, and left. And in consequence, likewise, by faith, the people passed through the Red Sea while the Egyptians drowned. Then you're into the period of uh, Joshua, in verse 30, and then the judges, all the way down to verse 32. And then instead of focusing on individuals, verses 32 to 38 focus on what we might call enigmatic outcomes. Down to 
35A, they're all positive outcomes. Have you noticed? And then from 35B to 38, they're all negative outcomes from our perspective. They're pretty striking. The positive side? What more shall I say? You have the long list of judges, verse 32, and then generically just describing individual events, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and so forth. Go through the list quickly. Conquered kingdoms, for example, the triumphant campaigns of those listed in verse 32, and then brought about justice, administered justice. You might think of 1 Samuel, who effects justice in the land as a judge, gained what was promised. David, for example, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he is promised the dynasty and he does gain the dynasty. Stop the mouths of lions, Samson, perhaps. David also is mentioned in this regard, 1 Samuel 17. Benaiah kills a lion in a snowy day, 2 Samuel 23. Daniel in the lion's den, stop the mouths of lions. Quenched the violence of fire. Quench the fury of the flames, probably thinking of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Probably. And um, escape the edge of the sword. Elisha at Dothan in 2 Kings chapter 6. Baruch and Jeremiah in chapter 36. Made strong, brought back to full strength in life. That's probably what was meant, whose weakness was turned to strength. Hezekiah brought back to life, even though it was thought that he would die. And then... um, Became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Many, many instances of that. Women received back their dead. Uh, The Shunammite uh, widow, for example. Are you familiar with all of these stories? If you're not, you need to be reading more of your Old Testament. You need to get the story straight. But the author can just pick them up and he expects his readers to know what he's talking about. And then on the other hand, the victims, 35b. The faith of martyrs is no less precious than the faith of victors. It's important to keep seeing that. (coughs) Women received back their dead, raised to life again, and then, by contrast, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. Now, none of these are named. Some of them happened in Old Testament times. Some of them happened in the period between the Testaments. Bonds and imprisonment. Micaiah in 1 Kings chapter 22 and Jeremiah, for example. Some, were told, were put to death by stoning, verse 37. Older versions said, some were stoned. But you can't say that anymore. It's a bit ambiguous. <laughs> some, some were put to death by stoning. You're supposed to think, I suspect, of Zechariah, 2 Chronicles 24. Sawn asunder, sawed in two. Now, we only know this from extra-biblical sources, but when he was an old, old man, Isaiah the prophet, yes, the canonical prophet, apparently running from wicked King Manasseh's henchmen, ran into a forest and hid in a hollow tree. They found him there, put ropes around the hole in the tree, so that he couldn't get out, and then cut down the tree with a saw. Apparently, that's how Isaiah, the prophet, died. Sawed in two. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. So there are enigmatic outcomes to faith. We read a book on George Mueller. If you've never read a biography of George Mueller, you ought to. A.T. Pearson is the one to read. P-I-E-R-S-O-N. George Mueller of Bristol, whose remarkable faith in his prayer life led him to ask God for things that were spectacular as he supplied the needs of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of orphans just by asking God for what was needed. But sometimes faith does not produce that kind of prayer life. Sometimes what it produces is faithful martyrs. Dying out as they burn in the flames. Open the King of England's eyes. So William Tyndale, who gave us a translated New Testament. 
That too is faith. We're far more turned on by the victory examples because we can imagine ourselves in them and enjoying them, thank you. It's hard to imagine being martyred and praying for our enemies. But that too is faith because you have confidence in God's words. And then all of this is summed up in faith's expectations in verses 39 and 40. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. They lived and died without the ultimate promises coming. The Messiah hadn't come, the ultimate Messiah, nor the ultimate city, the ultimate new heaven and the new earth, resurrection existence. They lived and they died by faith, trusting God and his words, even though those things hadn't come. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. That presupposes that what we, the us, what we are going through, as the author writes, is the gospel, the gospel of Christ Jesus. It's already here. It's come to us. The thing that had been anticipated for so long, for so many centuries, the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, the ultimate Israel, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate temple, the ultimate Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, the ultimate rest. It, it, it came about in, in the time of the author of, of the, 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 the epistle to the Hebrews. And they would not see it until it came to us. It was delayed until it came to us. They lived by faith. But now the author is saying, yet although it has come to us, it hasn't come to us fully. We, we are still waiting for the consummation. Christians often say, we're caught between the already and the not yet. Already we have eternal life, but we do not have eternal life yet in all its fullness. So we too have to walk by faith. As they walked by faith without any of these things having been given them, now so many of these things have been given to us, but they haven't been given to us completely, so we too must also walk by faith. And that may mean triumphs, and it may mean persecution. But what is required is that we trust God and his words perseveringly till the end. For you have been made sharers of Christ if you hold your original conviction steadfast to the end. Chapter 3, verse 14. That's what guards you against apostasy. That's what shapes your life of faith. That's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. Therefore, chapter 12, the conclusion... Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now, often this is described as all of these witnesses sitting in a, in a big stadium, as it were, watching us run the race as, as we, we are the participants in the race. They are the ones who have already competed and now we're running along and they're watching us. I think that's slightly screwball, to be honest. Because there's no evidence anywhere in Scripture that the saints who have gone on ahead are able to look down and see what's going on here. If so, they would scarcely be in heaven. I mean, they would be seeing so many things that would make them cry. Sometimes it would feel a little more like hell, it seems to me. And, 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 and there's no evidence that they watch in that sense. No, these are witnesses, not witnessing us, but they are witnesses to Christ. They are witnesses to the truthfulness of God's words. We're surrounded by these people who have borne witness to their faith again and again and again throughout all of the, 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 the recorded history, throughout all the streams of redemptive history, throughout all of the, the chapters of the Bible, throughout the summary in chapter 11. All, all of these witness, they bear witness to God and to his purposes and redemption. And now it's our turn to run the race. It's not that they're watching us. It's that they're bearing witness to King Jesus as the culminating goal of all of God's plans for redemption. They have borne witness in faith, and now we are called likewise to persevere in faith. And we do so, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So Jesus is not only faith's object, He's the pioneer. The expression suggests someone who 
forges his way through the wilderness and lays out a track, cuts down the tall marsh grass, opens up lines and paths, making a way. So that you can think of Jesus, yes, as the Redeemer and the Lamb who, who, who was sacrificed for us. And you can think of, of him as God, that's, that, that, that's true. And you can think of him as the archetypal supreme human being, that's, that's also true. But one of the ways that this book thinks about Jesus, it uses this expression half a dozen times, is that he's the pioneer. Elsewhere you find a similar notion. He's the firstborn from the dead, the pioneer, and thus we will rise from the dead like him with resurrection bodies like his. In this case, he's the pioneer of our faith. He's opened the way for our faith. He trusted his heavenly father. In that sense, he exercised faith. He believed God's words. That's why he went to the cross. He was obedient even unto death. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He's the pioneer who opens the way for us. And we follow along behind. So that whereas the Old Testament saints believed the words of God and looked forward to the coming Messiah, we believe the words of God and look back on what this Messiah has already done. And we see him as the one who has opened up faith's existence, the pioneer, the perfecter of faith. He perfects faith in that he himself shows us in himself what we are to trust, whom we are to trust, why we are to trust. He's the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In other words, we have as an example not only the Old Testament figures, we have Christ Jesus himself, the God-man, the one who, according to the opening verses, upholds all things by his powerful word, yet who joins with us, becomes a human being, bears our sin, and is obedient to the words of his own father, even to death on the cross. Consider him. In other words, this book does not leave you merely with a whole lot of instruction about how to read the whole Bible and put it together, though it does a lot of that. At the end of the day, what it wants from us is persevering faith. Persevering faith. Because the object of our faith is Christ and he persevered in trust to his heavenly father. Does he not tell us? If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Why should we be surprised at that? Indeed, that sort of theme recurs again and again in scripture, doesn't it? Paul writes to the Philippians, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. He emptied himself and made himself a nobody and therefore God has highly exalted him. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we trust ourselves to God knowing that in due course God will vindicate us too. Regardless of cost as it may come along. Let us pray. We confess with shame, Lord God, that sometimes we want a domesticated version of the gospel in which we're sort of preserved from too much trouble while we operate our own lives. But we beg of you, Lord God, to give us such a hunger for your words that we will shape our lives by them. We will receive them by faith in defiance of what the world thinks, building our lives and our futures for all eternity on the utter truthfulness and reliability of your words. And when we are assured that you do all things well, while we see our world falling apart, Help us, Lord God, still to walk by faith, knowing that in the end, your words will be vindicated. You make no mistakes. You are trustworthy. We pray, Lord God, that you will instill in each of us in these rooms a confidence before you, a confidence in your words, 
because you yourself have, dis- have insisted, to this man will I look, he who is of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. And grant us confidence not only in the truthfulness of your word, but in your goodness, your personal reliability, your sovereign capacity to work things out to your son's glory and for the good of the people for whom he shed his life's blood. We want to be able to say with the same confidence articulated by the Apostle Paul, he who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? You have already demonstrated your love toward us in the unimaginable ignominy and shame of the cross. How can we not trust you? So as we return to our very varied lives, some of us in pretty difficult home situations, some of us in challenging employment, some of us wrestling with doubts about our faith, some of us in broken and disturbing and even evil relationships, and some of us conversely full of the joy of the Lord, some of us for whom things at the moment seem to be going very well. Grant, Lord God, that we may not let despairing situations grind us down and forbid equally that happy circumstances should not authorize us to take our eyes off you but in both cases to fix our eyes on Christ Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him despised the cross. Grant that for the joy set before us, we too will despise any of the hardships that come our way because we eagerly look forward to the master's pronouncement on the last day. Well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful over a few things. I will give you work over many things. Come and enjoy your master's happiness. So grant, therefore, that we may not be among those who fall away in unbelief and disobedience. But grant that we may show ourselves to be sharers in Christ because we hold our original conviction steadfastly to the end. For Jesus' sake, amen.